If you have children and you would like to utilize our uh, children's ministry, now would be the time to uh, take advantage of that. And for those kids that are staying with us in the service, uh, we love having kids in the service. The noise does not bother us at all. Uh, We do have bulletins for them that are published each week. They're in the back that they can utilize to follow along in the service with us. If you are a guest here with us, This morning, my name is Joey, and I'm the pastor, and I promise that normally you don't have to listen to me this much, but uh, we had a few schedule uh, things that came up this week, and so I stepped in to do the music, but we are this morning, uh, we're going to begin by going, we're going to begin our new series on the gospel of Mark, but before we, you can go ahead and begin to thumb to Mark, but before we get to uh, the gospel of Mark before we start that this morning. We've slowly been just working our way through our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which summarizes for us key doctrines in Scripture. And we've particularly over the last several weeks have been looking at what our confession says uh, or how it uh, systematizes, if you will, the Scripture's testimony about itself. And I am this morning, I'm still in chapter one, but I'm on paragraph seven, and I'll just read it for us uh, quickly, and then we will jump in to uh, the gospel of Mark. But the confession says this, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only, not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain a sufficient understanding of them. And that is grounded for us in Second Peter 3.16, Psalm 19.7, and Psalm 119.7 verse 130. And so that is the reading this morning from our confession of faith. But we are going to this morning look at the gospel of Mark. And and because this is our first, uh, this is the first sermon in that series, this is our our first go at, at uh, studying it, uh, this is going to be a little bit of, I'm going to have a little bit of background so that we can kind of see where we find ourselves in this gospel, uh, and the Lord willing, do so in such a way that will help us to understand this gospel a bit better. And so I'm going to spend a few moments just giving us some background, and then really, uh, for the rest of this morning, I want to meditate with you on Jesus Christ being the Son of God. That's kind of where I'm going to drill in. I'm going to read the first 11 verses I don't know how much of that we're going to get through, so we may revisit it next week, or we can be here for three hours, whichever you prefer. But uh, we'll see how much we, we get through together this morning. But, but just before I read uh, the first 11 verses of Mark, just again, a, a little bit of background, both the internal evidence, meaning what we see in Scripture, and then just what we see externally outside the Scripture, scholars, historians, date the Gospel of Mark, somewhere between AD 60 and AD uh, 70. It's, and, and what that means for us is this, it's considered, and it wasn't always considered this, it's considered one of the, if not the earliest gospel uh, to be written. And, uh, and many scholars believe that it is a primary source material for both Matthew and for Luke. 
Okay, as we read, and you'll even see this this morning, Mark is also a very brief book when you compare it to the other Gospels. And, and it's been given considerably less attention uh, than the other Gospels throughout church history for various reasons. But not only is Mark brief, but you'll find his writing style uh, is it's immediate. His writing style is, is action-focused. You, you'll notice throughout the book that Mark tends to focus on the actions of Jesus over the teachings of Jesus, which the other gospels seem to emphasize, although we will, we will see teachings of Jesus in this gospel. There's universal agreement in it, just throughout church history and even modern scholarship uh, that John Mark is the person that wrote this particular gospel, and it's primarily what he remembered, as we know, under the inspiration of the Spirit, but it's primarily what he remembered from the Apostle Peter's sermons. The Apostle Peter was a, a mentor, if you will, of his, but uh, and we would see that this is particularly true if you were to read Acts chapter 10, which is a sermon that Peter gives, specifically verses 36 to 41, you'll see themes and phrases that the Apostle Peter uses there the, uh, that John Mark, he picks up in this gospel and kind of hone in, hones in on. And, um, and so the, 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 this gospel is actually so closely related to the sermons of the Apostle Peter uh, that the early church from, from the first century onward uh, called this book affectionately Peter's Memoirs is, is how uh, it has been known throughout church history. So, so John Mark, he was a close associate, a, a, a disciple of the Apostle Peter. He was the son of a woman named Mary in whose uh, house members of the early church gathered and whose house was the same dwelling that Peter ran to after he was miraculously freed from prison. You see that in Acts chapter 12, verses 12 to 16. John Mark is also the John Mark that accompanied Barnabas and, and Saul, who we also know as Paul, on their first missionary journey. But for reasons that are unknown to us, he quit after that first trip. And his trying to rejoin, it caused a rift between Barnabas, who wanted him back, who was ready to welcome him back into the missionary fold, and Paul, who didn't want him back. And we see that in Acts chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. We, we see a final reference to John Mark uh, in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, where Peter makes it clear that John Mark is ministering with him, alongside of him. Right? Peter called John Mark in that passage, quote, my son. Right? And there's a, an entire sermon, really, that could be preached on perhaps the similarity between John Mark deserting Barnabas and Saul, again, who's Paul, and Peter deserting Christ at the moment of Christ's passion, right? We, we could even talk about, you know, you know, Christ knowing that Peter in his providence would be a good mentor for perhaps restoring John Mark, okay? And, and, and just how John, uh, and, and thank God that Christ uses deserters because we've all, we've all deserted him, and, uh, and he's graciously restored us. But according to patristic tradition, John Mark, he, he evangelized in Egypt, and he eventually became the first bishop of Alexandria. 
And we see that uh, recorded in Eusebius's histories. The theme and occasion for writing, right, the, the context of Mark isn't insignificant. It's not insignificant for us. He, he wrote to Gentiles. Okay? The, the language of the book supports this as well as how little he utilizes Old Testament uh, scripture in the book. And he was particularly writing to Roman Christians while he himself was in Rome. And, and during the date of the writings, Christians were under the intense persecution of Nero, who I mentioned briefly last week. He was a wicked emperor. He was known in code as 666 uh, or 616, Revelation 13. The number corresponds to Nero Caesar. Uh, And for Eusebius, one of the church fathers, Nero was, quote, the first that persecuted Christian doctrine. For uh, Tertullian, he was the first emperor who dyed his sword in Christian blood when our religion was just arising in Rome. For Severus, Nero was, quote, he who began a persecution of Christians. Right, so in light of Gentile Christians, in light of Roman Christians being persecuted, John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he recounts their hope as the Apostle Peter proclaimed it, as he articulated it, right? He, as we'll see, articulates the gospel utilizing, leaning on the work, the ministry of the Apostle Peter. And one commentator, before we just get to our text, I wanted to read this to you. One commentator rightly summarizes that in Mark's gospel, Jesus, and this is key, I think, to understanding uh, this, this gospel, Jesus is presented as the authoritarian yet suffering servant of God. He's presented as the authoritarian yet suffering servant of God. And I think given the context, this is an especially helpful, just bottom line theme for us to keep in mind as we work through what is this earliest gospel together. And so with that said, let me read the first 11 verses written by John Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, utilizing certainly the ministry of the Apostle Peter, starting with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what we're going to focus on. Verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all of the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. Kids, he ate bugs. And he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, quote, You're my beloved Son, in whom... I am well pleased. We go to the Lord in prayer. 
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we have in it. And God, we ask that you would grant us the grace to see and take away what it is that we need to see and take away. God, that as a result of spending time in this book, that we would enjoy our union with Christ more. And that we would see him and have confidence in him as he presents himself as the Son of God. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. While there are many things for us to see in in these first 11 verses of the Gospel of Mark, let, let me just begin by what we don't see, some perhaps obvious things that we don't see. We, we don't see, first and foremost, a genealogy of Christ. Right? We, we don't see an account, if you will, a clear account of his incarnation. We don't see or see, read of an account of the circumstances in which Christ was born into. Mark opens right up with not only announcing Jesus as the Son of God, and that really being the foundation of this entire book as we will continue to see, but he also moves to the forerunner of Christ, which we'll look at in a few moments as well. And he moves quickly to the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, which began at his baptism, which if we, we probably won't get into that much this morning, but we'll spend more time on that, Lord willing, next week. But, but things progress quickly. I mean, just in those 11 verses, we make it to um, the the beginning, if you will, of Christ's ministry in his humanity, right? His, his earthly ministry here. And the opening verse, verse 1 there, of Mark's gospel is Mark's way of telling us exactly what this book is about, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is in a way the, we could call this the title of the gospel of Mark. It would be appropriate to come away with that conclusion. Christ is the focal point. Christ drives this gospel. In Mark in verse 1, he acknowledges here Christ's messianic title, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, which is, which is a title of divinity that we see, of equality with God, a term that we see referenced in Psalm 2 and Matthew 14. In Luke chapter 1, right, this is a title that the Father affirms of Jesus as well, and we see that where? In verse 11, you are my beloved, what? Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Bishop of Liverpool, if you've ever heard of him, I know you guys could rattle that off the top of your head, right? J.C. Ryle is his name. He, he, he said that there is a beautiful fitness in placing this truth, right? Christ being the Son of God at the beginning of a gospel. He says the divinity of Christ is the citadel and the keep of Christianity. It's the citadel and the keep of Christianity, right? Without Christ as truly God, he's but a man, right? He's but a man. And a man couldn't make mankind right with God. It's an impossibility, right? Only, only God can both make and keep our covenant relationship with himself. Therefore, Jesus isn't just 
truly man. He's truly God. He must be God. However, this title, the Son of God, it also denotes the humanity of Christ and not just his deity because if Jesus is not truly man, if God didn't condescend to us in the flesh, then we have no representative. Jesus did not become sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we didn't receive the benefits of both his active and his passive obedience. However, according to Scripture, the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 5 that Christ really did become a man. He, He became the second Adam, is a title that Christ possesses. Meaning he became a good representative of his people. He became a representative that Adam should have been, but wasn't. And that was made possible through the incarnation. Right, kids? That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because God became flesh. He added humanity, became truly human, truly man. He added that to his deity without diminishing any of his deity. So this title, Son of God, it's a messianic term that communicates to us, right, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament. It communicates to us the divinity of Christ. It communicates to us as well the humanity of Christ, right? To be a, a son of God is to be one who in his humanity was obedient to the will of the Father. In fact, Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of John that his works... Christ says that his own works are a greater witness to him being the Son of God than John the Baptist, who we'll look at in a moment, testifying about him. He says in verse 36 of John 5, I have a greater witness than John's. If you think John's a good witness, wait till you see this. He says, for the works which the Father has given me, the task the Father gave Christ, And he says, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. In contrast to this, we have Jesus in a discussion with the Pharisees, and he calls them children of Satan. We do the deeds of our Father. If you want to know who you belong to, look to your deeds. He calls them the children of Satan because they were committed to the deeds of the devil. John chapter 8, verse 44. So it's on these terms, Jesus is the Son of God. It's on these terms that we receive Christ. We receive Him truly as the Son of God. Which again means that we receive Him as man, truly man. We receive Him as God, truly God. We, we We can't receive Him any other way. We can't receive him any other way. He doesn't leave that kind of wiggle room for us, does he? He doesn't, right? No other acceptance of him will do. That was one of the things that C.S. Lewis was getting at, if you're familiar with his book, Mere Christianity, when he said that we must confess Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. There's no wiggle room here. He says this, Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people, people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
Right? That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Christ genuinely is the Son of God. He's the Son of God, and he is the Son of God eternally. He's the Son of God eternally. And, And these opening verses in Mark's gospel demonstrates to us even the very outworking of God's eternal decree as it relates to Christ being the eternal Son of God coming in the incarnation to both seek us out and save us, to reconcile us. Now, one of the ways in which Mark further demonstrates this point and and presses in on the reality of Christ being the Son of God is by introducing us, I've mentioned this already, to to who he calls the forerunner. He introduces to to the forerunner. In verse 2b, that forerunner is known as, quote, my, speaking of God's, God's messenger. And we see that he's identified in our text as John the Baptist. He, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you will. And, and he's the one who clears the path, okay, as a messenger, he clears the path for Christ to be received as the Son of God. Right? In that way, he, he heralded a message, if you will, of preparation, it's what John the Baptist was doing. And it was God's plan that John the Baptist be born for that very reason. He was born for that purpose. His very birth was prophesied about. It was announced by an angel. As I mentioned earlier, Mark, he doesn't utilize a lot of Old Testament in his gospel, mainly because he was speaking to Gentiles, to Roman Christians, but we do see him utilize Isaiah here. We see him utilize Malachi and possibly uh, some from the book of Exodus for the formation of this Old Testament quote that we see in the second part of verse 2 and verse 3. Quote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. John had a, a prophetic ministry, right? He, he was God's appointed messenger in the spirit of Elijah, right? Luke's gospel gives us insight into that very thing. You don't have to flip over there. I think that I may have that. Um, do I have Luke by chance? Luke chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. For he, speaking of John the Baptist, will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Right? We see him leap his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's, that was preordained for John the Baptist to do. He will also go before him, before Christ, in the spirit 
in power. Who? Elijah. And like Elijah, John the Baptist had a ministry in the wilderness. Okay? John the Baptist, he was a rugged man. He dressed in camel's hair. Again, he ate bugs. He ate locusts and wild honey. And that was a miracle in and of itself that anyone would listen to someone dressed in camel's hair, eating bugs, right? But the prophet Malachi spoke of Elijah prefiguring the day, what he called the day of the Lord. In fact, this is how the Old Testament concludes. These are the very last verses in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 say, say this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. In the Old Testament and in the intertestamental period, that time of silence, if you will, from God between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's understood that Elijah would, would, would prefigure the appearance of God himself. That's where they left off in the Old Testament. So the fact that the gospel writers come in and they apply the coming of Elijah in spirit and in power, as we see in Luke's gospel, to John the Baptist, it's significant. It's significant for us. The coming of John the Baptist meant the coming of God. The coming of God. The coming of John the Baptist meant the coming of, quote, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Right, don't lose sight of what, what we're pressing into here, what we're kind of meditating on, if you will. Right? The overarching banner this morning is Jesus as the Son of God. Right, you can really have confidence that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And it isn't just John the Baptist's message that gives way to that in our text. It's even his very person. It's his very existence. Right? John is the forerunner, is another authenticating thing as it relates to, to the identity of Christ. All right, it, his, his very life, his very ministry funnels, it points, directs, draws attention to, puts in neon lights that Jesus is the long-awaited for Messiah, that he's truly God and he's truly man and he came to deliver us from our sins. All right, from John's mi- ministry mirroring, mirroring that of Elijah to the very message John the Baptist preached, It funnels to Christ. Look back with me, verses 4 to 8. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying... There comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, so John the forerunner, someone that you would not think people would pay much attention to, had a preaching ministry that was authoritative. People listened. He preached and people responded. And his message was to prepare them for the coming of God on earth. 
His baptism even was preparatory. We shouldn't look at his baptism and think, what we, as, think what we know now as, as Christian baptism. There, there's a touch point between John's baptism and the baptism that Jesus commands in Matthew 28. And that touch point is the repentance of sin. But this isn't the Christian baptism that we practice today. Jonathan Edwards says that John was a forerunner of Christ and his baptism was only to prepare the way for his appearing but his baptism did not wholly cease as soon as he appeared, but gradually decreased, and Christ gradually increased. The, the baptism we see John practicing here is more of a, a Jewish ritual cleansing, if you will, that John was offering to Israel. His, jo- his job, and thus his baptism, was meant to get people ready. Right? He, he was calling, if you will, for, for fertile soil. He was calling for humility. He was preaching in the power of the Spirit about sin. He was preaching in the power of the Spirit about the necessity of repentance and about being saved from sin. And he was obligating those who would hear and repent and be baptized to look forward, right? To, to direct their gaze forward to the one who was, who was mightier, who would come next. An early church father, Tertullian, who died in A.D. 220, said this of John the Baptist. When John preached baptism for the remission of sins, the declaration was made with the reference to a future remission. If so, John's call to repentance is to lead the way and actual remission is to follow. That's what's meant by preparing the way. But one who prepares does not himself perfect, but rather makes ready for another to perfect. And that is where John, in his baptism, right, his life, his ministry, that's where it pointed to. That's where it directed. Right? John says, the one who comes after me is mightier than I. Right? He even contrasts his baptism with that of the Son of God who would baptize, according to John, with the Holy Spirit. Right? So this sets the stage for us this morning as we embark on this journey through the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to John Mark, or Peter's memoirs, if you will. And and we're really only scratching the surface, but we need to see foundationally that we must accept, we must embrace, we must confess Christ as the Son of God. And, And we have plenty of reason to do that very thing. So just a few takeaways for us quickly. They're, they're in your bulletin. The first is this. Make way for Christ in your life through the gift of repentance. Make way for Christ in your life through the gift of repentance. Right, John the Baptist made way for Christ by calling for repentance. We make way for Christ as we turn and forsake our sin. We, we must, and I'm not talking about sin at some high-level generic sense. I mean, we must see our particular sins as ugly, as ugly and as offensive to our God, right? Sins like anger, sins like pride, our inward immoral sexual desires and pornography, right? Homosexuality, covetousness. Bitterness, lying, 
slothfulness, greed, the specific list can go on and on and on, but we must be specific about our particular sins and we must confess them and we must turn away. We must make room for Christ. We must see those sins as as genuinely deserving the full wrath of God. We should see how bad it is for us to continue down that path where we don't confess. We don't agree with the scriptures about our state apart from Jesus Christ. We must turn in repentance to make room for Christ. Turn away from our darkness and turn to the one who the scripture calls light. He's light. And as we turn, as we do that, at the same time we're giving praise and honor and glory to God alone because the turning in and of itself is a grace, is a gift from God. The very act of repentance, a gift allowing us to make room for Christ. There was no room for Jesus in the inn. May that not be true of our hearts. May that not be true of our hearts. We have to turn by the grace of God and repent. We have to make room for Christ, but we don't just do that. As we turn from our particular sins, we're not just forsaking sin, but we're turning in faith. That's takeaway number two. In faith, trust in Christ as the Son of God. In faith, trust in Christ as the Son of God. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Repentance without faith is just turning from one idol to the next idol. That's all that is. We make room for Christ by turning in repentance and in turning in faith as we trust Him to be who He says He is, to be who the Scriptures declare Him to be, to to confess him as with our saints. One of the reasons I love reading about this confession is it ties us. We're not just some church in 2022 floating in the ether confessing new things. We are standing with brothers and sisters all throughout church history. We are standing with the New New Testament church itself saying, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I will in faith trust him as such. We have every reason to trust in Christ as the Son of God. We should call him Lord, as Lewis concluded. We should say along with the Apostle Peter, where else are we going to go? Christ alone has the words of eternal life because Christ alone is eternal life. And then lastly, there's a call for humility that we see in this text. And we see that biblical humility, it exalts Christ. Pride plagues us. False humility, even people that try to pretend that they're humble. It's pride. Biblical humility, the the definition of humility is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Absolutely everything else is pride. It's the exaltation of self. It's self-serving. With biblical humility, you're not even in the equation. There's no... No, not even self-deprecation, no sackcloth and ashes to show how humble you are. Right? You are out of focus. You get out of the way. You're not thinking of you or your advancements or the lack thereof. Right? You're not even concerned with how humble you appear to be to other people. Right? There's only a concern with the exaltation of Christ, with the pouring out of your life as a drink offering for His glory in the good of man, Philippians 2, 17. Right? John the Baptist, he came from the wilderness. Right? 
He preached and he stayed in the wilderness. Didn't, I didn't kind of, that didn't, you don't make your way up the corporate ladder doing that. All right. He didn't seek acclaim. He was not on some road of self importance. Right? As we will see, he was eventually beheaded for his commitment to Christ, his commitment to exalt Christ. Right? John was a humble man. He was one whose very life was fashioned by God to direct, to point us toward Jesus Christ. He considered himself unworthy to even be Christ's slave, to even untie the very sandal strap of Christ, which was such a demeaning thing, job in that culture. It's a low place to be, which is a good place to be. We're not John the Baptist, nor should we try. Kids, don't go home and eat bugs. But he had a unique calling, right, in the first century. And we can see in his life the very things that we should apply, which is we should capture in our own station in life where the Lord has placed us, should capture biblical humility to exalt Jesus Christ, right? All of us were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So as we walk this path as God's people of repentance and faith in Christ, we walk the path that is one of humility, one of exalting Jesus, whatever our station in life, for His glory, our good, the good of other people. And as we do, we'll be filled with the joy of the Lord. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You again for this time in Your Word. And Lord, I just ask that you would humble us, that your Holy Spirit would convict us, that our affections would be warmed for you, Lord. And thank you for allowing us to study this book. And we give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are a guest with us, this is the time of our service. Each week we come to the Lord's table uh, and... um,